Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 13th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Okay, think hard. What's your best friend's birthday? And where did you put your house keys this morning? And what time is that board meeting at? Don't ask me, ask your hippocampus, the region of your brain responsible for all things memory. And that includes forgetfulness. Scott Small is a neurologist at Columbia University. He researches how and why we lose our memories as we age and is working to develop better diagnostics for memory diseases like Alzheimer's. Small spoke at Columbia University's Cafe Science series earlier this week and I also sat down with him in his office with some questions. This week, we take a trip to his lab and learn how he does what he does and what he's discovering. Okay, so where are we going? Uh, I'm with Scott Small, Columbia University neurologist. We're walking down a long hallway en route to his lab at the Columbia University Medical Center at 168th Street. He's about to show me the smallest fMRI machine I've ever seen. We're walking into um, a dedicated mouse MRI laboratory. By, by that I mean that everything here is optimized for improving the signal of a very small, of generating pictures from a very small mouse brain, as well as maintaining the health of mice. That's right, so mouse brains. Scott Small studies functional brain disorders, more specifically, memory decline, the kind that happens naturally as we age and memory loss that comes from diseases like Alzheimer's. Small looks at a part of the brain called the hippocampus, a tiny, finger-shaped region of which there are two, located in the temporal lobes and buried deep in the middle of the brain. And what does the hippocampus do? And again, here, you know, we sometimes hear this colloquial description, not only colloquial, I mean, often, uh, you know, neurologists and neuroscientists aren't very precise in what the hippocampus does and doesn't. It's involved with memory, but memory is a lot. What parts of memory? And and without going into great detail, uh, I'm actually blessed with a great analogy that is quite accurate in explaining what the hippocampus does and doesn't do. So I'm talking about our laptop or desktop computers and our software programs that we typically use. Uh, and, And I imagine most people here do use them. And as you know, as you're writing on your screen a a document, a letter, uh, you know that if you want to save that information, you need to click on the save function, typically on the upper left folder uh, icon. And and, And if you don't do that and you turn your computer off, the information is lost forever. If you click on the save function, what that does is it takes information from your short term memory, your screen, and it shifts it to your hard drive, your long term memory. And that's exactly what, well, almost exactly, what the hippocampus does. What makes Small's work possible is the recognition that the hippocampus is made up of various groups of neurons. The ultimate confirmation that we have different groupings, uh, and perhaps the confirmation that's most important for my work, is at the molecular level. In other words, neurons, like all cells, have a different group of proteins or a different group of genes that they express. And it turns out that these different areas of the hippocampus 
are distinct in their molecular profiles. That's the term we use. So if you look at anatomy, if you look at function, i.e. electrophysiology, if you look at molecular biology, all these levels of analysis clearly establish that the hippocampus is made up of probably four or five different groupings of neurons. And when it comes to our aging brain, normal memory loss seems to happen in one area of the hippocampus called the dente gyrus, but pathological memory loss, or memory loss caused by a disease like Alzheimer's, happens in another. What's emerging as true from our lab and from other labs as well is that insofar that Alzheimer's and aging both target the hippocampus as a structure, which is, that is accepted as true, they do so by targeting different parts of the hippocampus. So for example, we can begin to find these different patterns in human investigation, but in humans we never really know who with certainty doesn't have the earliest stages of Alzheimer's, and that's something that's important to emphasize. And, and, and because of that, when we see these patterns emerging in human investigations, it's only an indication that it might be true. The way to confirm that is to go to animal models. So small uses mice. Mice have emerged as one of the, the most commonly used models to understand human disease and the human brain for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, uh, the mouse hippocampus, the mouse brain, is remarkably similar to our own. <laughs> Secondly, there are technologies that allow us to introduce genes. It's called transgenic engineering. So, so that's why the mouse, among other of our relatives in the animal kingdom, are actually a good animal model to understand these kind of questions. So for example, we can take a mouse that has a hippocampus very similar to ours that does not develop Alzheimer's naturally, but we can take a group of these mice, introduce a gene that causes them to have Alzheimer-like changes at a relatively young age, and that allows us to really ask with certainty, what does Alzheimer's do without aging? And the flip of that is, what does aging do without Alzheimer's? And that's the kind of elegance and the sort of experimental power that human research doesn't allow us. That's an MRI machine? Back in the lab, Small shows me how the mouse fMRI machine works. Yes, that's maybe a better description, a big beer keg. Yeah, it's sort of like a big, it looks like a boiler. Kenny, what does it look like? It's like a big coffee urn. Oh, a big coffee urn. That's a, a good one. Coffee. That's better. And it's shiny and silver. And so, what's inside of there is what's inside. So we have there, there. There is a core. There's a hollow core. Have you ever been in an MRI? No. You, you've never been MRI. No. Is that rare? To not have ever. No, it's becoming rare and rare. Most people, you know, anytime they go to a doctor and complain of anything, they send them to an MRI. So, have you ever seen an MRI? On the, TV. Yeah. So you know, an MRI. I mean, imagine if we were to put this on its side. Okay and then make it a lot bigger, okay. it would start looking like what you've seen on TV. Which basically, in t- on TV, they, the people slide into it, exactly. and then it clicks around their head, and then they slide out again. Yeah, it actually doesn't click. They, okay. they think it clicks around their head. Oh. They just go, it, it's, you're right, it's a tunnel. Okay. So the, and we have a tunnel here, and the, but it's just vertical. Okay. So the mouse is, that's sort of the tunnel where the mouse would be. And oh. we just, push it oh. up instead of pushing it horizontal. So you it's, kind same, of it's essentially, I mean, in, a, in terms of scaling, it's exactly like a human MRI. In other words, it's a small tunnel, but like anyone who took an MRI, you know you're in a small tunnel. It's just made for a mouse. And at the same time, we have all these monitoring devices to make sure that the mouse is doing well. This is all done under anesthesia. Okay. The mouse uh, wakes up and is okay. Oh. And 
do you do it multiple times to the same mouse? We can do that. That's one of the great advantages of imaging is that oh. you can actually track the mice over time. Uh, and so you By tracking the mice over time, Small gets data that can help with three main research goals. First, we can use that information diagnostically. In other words, uh, I do see patients half day a week. It's an Alzheimer's clinic. And more and more of my patients aren't patients at all. You know, a 75-year-old New York City lawyer who's always been great with, with names of new clients. He's still doing well, still w winning uh, his cases. But he just noticed he can't remember names of his clients as well as he used to. And he comes to me, asks, you know, is it early Alzheimer's or not? A very good question, simple question, which we simply can't answer. Uh, and so currently what we're doing is we're using your money, meaning if you pay taxes and went to the NIH and it came to our lab, to test whether this has diagnostic utility. Uh, let me just highlight mammography. Been around for nearly a century, and we still don't know its diagnostic utility. So playing the diagnostic game is quite challenging, but we're trying to. We've just completed a study where we imaged uh, almost 300 healthy elders, and we're going to see whether we can predict who progresses to Alzheimer's or not based on these patterns in the hippocampus. The other utility is trying to develop effective treatments and trying to understand contributing causes, and I'll illustrate this in a minute. And the third utility is trying to get at core mechanisms. Can we now zoom in deeper and ask, well, what actually is going wrong there at the molecular level? So let me just talk about that second utility. Can we use this information to find etiologic contributors? What do I mean by that? What small means is, are there outside factors or other aging processes that are directly correlated to memory loss? The answer is yes. What we found, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the, 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 the end and then I'll back up and tell you how we got to it. We found that, that age-related changes in glucose regulation seems to be one ideologic contributor to normal age-related memory decline. How did we get at this? The way we started is by looking at subjects who have type 2 diabetes versus controls. And you know people with type 2 diabetes have elevations in blood glucose and blood insulin. We saw a dominant effect in the dentate gyrus. And then we can ask, is it the insulin or the diabetes that's contributing? And we had a link between glucose and the dentate gyrus. But that's just a link. And again, human research, an impasse. You know, people with type 2 diabetes take a lot of drugs. They have other disorders. How do we really know that it's not something else that's driving, that's causing dentate gyrus dysfunction? And here again, using cross-species imaging is important. We can take animal models and systematically turn up and turn down glucose transiently and see and show that, that this has a direct effect on the dentate gyrus. The second requirement is uh, this, this temporal profile. And this is something I have to say I didn't know about and my endocrinology colleagues taught me. And that is, as we age, we all have a greater and greater difficult time handling glucose. And this is, typically occurs after a large meal. Um, and so after a large meal, you know, all food is essentially digested to glucose. The body has a surge in glucose. Uh, you know, if you're uh, Barack's age, uh, my nephew who's a freshman in, at Columbia, after an hour, his blood glucose level will come back to normal because the muscles absorb all the glucose in other cells. If you're my age, in my late 40s, it'll take an hour or two. And if you're older, it'll take three or four hours. So what that means is that over an integrated 24-hour period, the older you are, the more your brain is exposed to these sort of spikes in glucose. And that begins, it's amazing, that begins in our 30s and again progresses across the lifespan. So that fulfills both of the criteria. Therefore, we suspect that glucose dysregulation is one contributing cause, one, 
there probably are many, to age-related memory decline. Now, how can that help us with, with therapeutics? By therapeutic interventions, I, just, I don't mean only drugs, which I think is the most difficult bioethical debate, although I have opinions about that. I also mean things like behavioral interventions. And interestingly, this glucose story uh, does suggest an immediate therapeutic intervention that everyone here could do, and as New Yorkers you do most than non-New Yorkers, and that's physical exercise, uh, aerobic fitness. We had actually a result that came out, we published a study two years ago, which came out before the kind of glucose story, and only now that we have the glucose finding do we understand the results. And that, that study, what we found is that if you take humans and mice, and again using cross-species imaging, and exercise them over a period of time, you find that in the hippocampus, the greatest benefit of that exercise is in the dentate gyrus, which was quite a remarkable observation because exercise does so many things. And at the time, we were left wondering, what is the mechanism? Well, one of the things that exercise do does is that it improves our body's ability to handle glucose. Uh, by essentially changing the molecular structure of your muscles, they now become spongier, effectively, to glucose. Uh, and so we're now testing this hypothesis more formally. Does exercise ameliorate age-related memory decline by improving our ability to absorb glucose? In the lab, we're looking at a couple of mice who are testing the glucose theory. You see they're happy. Yeah. And uh, they'll be getting their MRIs and they'll be put back just as happy. So do these guys have, have you given them the gene for? No, these, these, these mice were exercising. Oh. So we're just seeing how Where? Well we, we have a little exercise, a mouse gym. Really? Yeah, which can you, I see no, the... You can't, oh. Unfortunately, animal facility. Oh. And a lot of people there. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, so do they just basically play? Is that the... No, they, they, they go on treadmills. And they, and they, and they, love, they, they love to run. It's, it's really remarkable. <laughs> it's so funny. Wait, I have a cage. I, I oh, an exercise, an exercise, an exercise cage? Yeah. Oh. Sure. The tables have turned. <laughs> so you can see. Oh. So it's just a. It's like a, a hamster cage. It's just a kind hamster of. cage, uh, but they we get charged a lot of money for these cages because it can monitor how long, very precisely, how long the animal can, can run. Huh. And what's remarkable is that these animals, if you let them run, they will run for. New, New York to Albany's our story. We, we, had, really? we had one mouse who just oh loved gosh. running so much. He ran uh, the equivalent, uh, I think it was around 100 kilometers. Wow. In one... In, one a, in a couple of weeks. In a it's pretty amazing. I wonder yeah. why they love to run so much. Maybe it's because it's what they do normally every day. It when is they're what not. they do normally. Yeah. Maybe because it makes their memory better. <laughs> so what if we you've already know. noticed your memory just isn't as sharp as it used to be? Is it still worth your while to mount that exercise bike? Small says yes, and in fact, you might get some of your memory capability back. The good news is, is that we're dealing with, in aging, not in Alzheimer's, it looks like we're dealing with sick neurons and not dead neurons. And there is reason to believe that you can take a sick neuron that has less connections with its neighbors. That would be an indication of its sickness. And through exercise and some things you can take by mouth, you can actually cause it to re-sprout new connections. So it's a sort of a basic principle in, in neuroscience, you know, spearheaded by Eric Kendall and others, 
who've shown brain plasticity. In other words, our brains are dynamic. They're always growing and retracting more connections. As long as a cell is alive, it can keep on doing that into late life. So, yes, there, there, is, there is reason to believe that you might reverse something, uh, although that, I would have to admit, is a lot more ambitious um, and than, than just preventing it from happening in the first place. The one question that begs, of course, is that if we're discovering certain factors that directly contribute to memory loss, can't we just make a pill to keep our brains sharp? And should we? Ethics, it turns out, plays a big role in Small's work. Currently, my main ethical concern is whether our focus on therapeutic interventions for normal aging will siphon away funding from uh, more devastating disorders. I also work on Alzheimer's, and I can tell you that Alzheimer's is quite devastating. And, and, and so that is one sort of question, a sort of zero-sum game argument if we have limited resources, funding and personnel-wise. Is it going to take away our efforts to find the cure for Alzheimer's? I leave Small's lab feeling a little bit better about my own tendency to forget names at parties and everybody's birthday. And I'm resolving to run an extra mile every morning. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? There are a couple ways you can show your support. First, you could become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by going online at www.nias.org. Second, get your name and advertising in a Science in the City podcast by sponsoring one. For more information, email Adrian Burke at A-B-U-R-K-E at N-Y-A-S.org. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would love your feedback. Please send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to check us out online, scienceinthecity.org. See you next week.